0: Would you pray with me? We have done it and now we do it one more time here before I speak. We wait for you. We wait for you. And I pray that you would come now in our waiting and in my speaking and satisfy our souls in Christ and all that he... Has done and all that you, Father, are for us in Him. And I pray that under you, Father, we would see that there isn't anything greater except for one thing. There isn't anything greater under you except for one thing than the individual soul aflame in worship. And that one thing is the bride of Christ aflame in worship. So come and show us now the connection between these two things, I pray. And set our hearts and our churches aflame with God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated worship. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the individual human soul Underline the word individual, the individual human soul rightly seeing the glory of Christ and rightly savoring the glory of Christ is at the heart of the purpose for which God made the world and until we grasp the relationship between that and corporate Worship. We won't be able to give an account for why the worship of the bride, the worship of the temple, the worship of the body is the ultimate end for why God made the world, not merely the individual soul worshiping. So what I want to do in this message is try to steer a course between two errors. On the one side is the error of thinking that the Relationship between the individual worshiping human soul and God, that relationship between my soul and God in worship is the ultimate purpose for which God made the world. It's not. The other error that I would like to avoid is being so captivated by the corporate reality Of the worshiping people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of God, the bride of Christ, that we lose sight of the fact that the vital, ongoing, eternal intensity of the individual soul is absolutely essential for the authenticity of that corporate reality of worship, which is the ultimate goal for which God made the world. So the New Testament forbids that we neglect or forget or minimize the radical, essential, eternal significance of the individual worshiping soul. It forbids. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever minimize that. Don't ever neglect that. Don't ever think that there can be a God-centered worship without that. And the New Testament forbids that we forget or neglect or minimize the coming into being through Christ of a blazingly beautiful bride who is more than the sum of her parts. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by focusing on the relationship between the individual soul and the ultimate purpose of God. I I don't want to downplay or minimize either of these. We start with the individual. We'll end with the corporate. One of the clearest statements in God's Word about the end for which God made everything is Isaiah 43, 6, and 7. I'll read it to you. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Every son, every daughter created to display the glory of God, or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we might be to the praise of his glory, or Romans eleven thirty six. 36. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever, Amen. So, God created the world. He sustains the world. He governs the world. He does everything in the world to display His glory. That is, His greatness, His beauty, His worth. Those are my three efforts to get at the meaning of the word glory. Oh, how often we will use the word glory in this conference. You'll hear it, no doubt, hundreds of times. So, I'm filling it up with three other words for you. You can meditate on whether... Greatness, beauty, worth helps you grasp what you're saying when you say that word glory. He does everything he does in order to display his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 19.1, the trees of the forest sing for joy. Psalm 96, 12, the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy together. Psalm 98, 8, the meadows and the valleys shout and sing for joy. Psalm 65, verse 13, or Isaiah 44, sing, O heavens, shout, O depths of the earth, Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord will be glorified in Israel. So you've got the heavens, the mountains and the hills, the forest and the trees, the rivers and the meadows, all of them created to sing, to sing or clap to the glory of their maker. And they do. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, that's what they are doing. May the Lord give you eyes and give you ears if you haven't heard it or seen it. So does a 150-voice choir of unbelieving musicians singing the Hallelujah Chorus. Can find that on almost any large city venue every Easter. Unbelievers singing Handel's Messiah, surrounded by an orchestra full of unbelieving musicians. And they too are like trees and meadows glorifying God with their God-given, amazing creativity and skill, like trees, soulless trees, clapping their hands. So, if God gets so much glory from the, the external echoes of His creative and redeeming excellency in this world like that, external evidences of his reality, if he gets so much glory that way, why is there a need for the individual human soul to have any particular affections for God in order for him to achieve his creator purpose? Isn't it enough that God's purpose is being glorified by the trees and the planets and the skies and the hills and the rivers and the orchestras and the choirs, all singing because they were made in the image of God, whether they believe or not. Isn't that enough? And, of course, the answer is no. No, it's not enough. Why? Because God does not intend to be half-glorified. Picture a king, a king and a kingdom, two kinds of kings. A king may be glorified, magnified, praised, honored for his great achievements, power, wisdom. He rules his kingdom with an iron hand. He sees to it great fortifications have been built in my kingdom. Beautiful buildings have been built in my kingdom. Gardens have been constructed in my kingdom. My citizens under my iron hand have been forced to become phenomenal excellent musicians playing grand and excellent music in my kingdom. The finest pieces of art I forced to be made in my kingdom. He's not so great a king and he's not so glorified as the king who is loved by his people, admired, revered, cherished, treasured, desired, enjoyed by his people so that the affections of their king exalting hearts create greater fortifications, and more beautiful buildings, and greater gardens, and greater musical compositions. A king is more glorified by a cherishing people than a cowering people. He's not going to be settling for half-glorification. He will have all the glory from the heart and the skill. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, this is one of the most important statements on worship in the Bible. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain. Do they worship me? Vain. Zero. In vain do they worship me. Matthew 15, 7. So, here you have in this text an excellent use of the mouth. That's what lips are for. With your lips, you honor me. That's what they're for, and they're doing it. Half, my honor is sounding forth, my glory is sounding forth from your lips. I'm being glorified by your mouth, just like by the mountains and the trees and the rivers and the unbelieving orchestras and ensembles and choirs on Easter. Their heart, he says, is far away. A heart only exists in one place, in an individual. Individual hearts are far away, meaning what? Verse 9, Matthew 59, meaning in vain do they worship me, in vain, meaning It's an external echo of excellence and a zero in the heart. It's not worship. It's not the essence. It misses the essence. The the essence of worship is the heart aflame with affection for the beauties of God. What comes out of the mouth is fruit to that root, where that root is severed and those affections are gone, this God counts as zero. In vain do they worship me. That's not why He created the world. Not to be half-glorified, externally glorified, trees clapping their hands. Unbelieving orchestras reflecting His excellence. That's not why He created the world. He created the world in order that there might be an echo of His excellence in the hearts of His affectionate people. That affection is the echo of His excellence that completes the reason for creation at the individual level. Where that's not present, Amos 5, 23, the voice of God sounds over every congregation. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, says the Lord. Why? The heart is not there. Don't hire unbelievers in your church. It almost goes without saying, but is so crucial, I will say it anyway, that these absolutely essential affections are in individual hearts and nowhere else. That's where affection, love, treasuring, desiring, delighting, that's where they exist, here, nowhere else. Everything else is expression or awakening, causes, but here's where it resides. Just think of it, the universe made for this, these affections, these loves. It's the first commandment. love the Lord your God with all your, tell me. That's the first one. Yes, the others are mentioned. Number one starts here. If not there, the others don't count. He turns away from them. Now, let's switch gears. Let's turn to the question of the corporate reality. If affections for God in the individual human soul are the essence, and I think they are, the essence of the self-glorifying purpose of God in the universe, Now mark the word essence because I'm not saying totality, I'm not saying the individual human heart affections are the totality of worship or the totality of God's ultimate purpose. They are the essence without which nothing counts, okay? So keep that word in mind. If affections for God in the individual soul, are the essence of the self-glorifying purpose of God in creating the world, how do those heart affections give rise to the corporate reality of the worshiping church? Because it's clear from the New Testament It's not just millions and millions of isolated, independent human souls with white-hot affection for God that he's aiming at like a billion solos. That's not the picture of the end of history. God is bringing into being a diverse global church pictured as the body the temple, the bride of Christ. Paul pictures the church as the wife of Jesus in Ephesians 5.27, and this is what he says about the purpose of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe, coming into the world. Why did he come? Why did he come and die? And here's what it says in Ephesians five twenty-seven: So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. <laughs> he wants a beautiful wife for his son, for himself. In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So, Christ means to have a beautiful wife. It's an amazing statement. A wife made up of millions of white-hot worshiping individuals, but vastly more. That's what this talk is about. The more. Why more? How more? This conference is devoted to blessing churches. At least that's my understanding of what's going on here. (laughs) Blessing congregational singing, especially. There's more, but mainly I'm hoping that's what happens. Hundreds and hundreds of congregations do what they're called to do better because of what happens here. So, this local expression of the local church, what is it? Emerging, global, everlasting, corporate, worshiping reality called the Bride of Christ. What local churches do in their gathered worshiping assemblies is to, you can say it different ways, rehearse for that eternal vocation of the bride, foretaste. Of that eternal vocation of the bride? That's what we do week after week in our gatherings called corporate worship. Now, there's a text. My guess is for many of you who think worship thoughts all the time, this text is very prominent in your mind. And I just want to make sure you see what I see. You probably see more, but let me show you three. Absolutely crucial things that I see as I read this to you. This is Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Can I do that? With your heart. Three things, from your heart, or it's not worship, to the Lord, always addressing one another, always. That's corporate worship. Now, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether the song is vertically directed like, we come, O Christ, to Thee the, second person, singular, vertical, or horizontal, come Christian, join us and sing. That's you, you, plural, second person, plural. It doesn't matter whether the song happens to be grammatically addressed to God or grammatically addressed to people. This text says, and it's true. Every song is sung in the presence of God. And he's listening to every song, and he's either holding his nose or loving it. <laughs> he's enjoying, as he will forever, the reception of our praises into his life. Whether we're singing to each other, or whether we're singing to Him, and it's from, thirdly, so to Him, to each other, it's from the heart or it's not worship. God's design is that we, every gathering in worship, rehearse for the everlasting corporate reality of the bride in worship. So what's plain from those verses, Ephesians 5, 18, and 19, is that the birthplace of the essence of worship, the birthplace of the essence of worship is the individual human heart. It says, from the heart. He mentions from the heart in corporate worship. That's the birthplace, because there isn't any other place where affections for God happen. Affections are native to the human soul, nowhere else. And then from this furnace of Christ-exalting affections, there flames up expressions in song to God, song to people. And the corporate reality... The worshiping bride is brought into being by the combining of these individual burning hearts into a new reality. This is where I'm going. I'm I'm, I'm getting near the end here. New reality. First the foretaste here in corporate worship. And then finally, in the complete, perfected, eternal worship of the bride in the presence of the Lamb forever. That's the ultimate goal of God in creation. Now, why? What is it about the corporate reality of the singing bride that makes her worship the ultimate end rather than just me, me and God in love with each other and me singing and me Obeying, and that's the end, that's the point of creation. You doing that, me doing that, 10,000 of us doing that. Why why isn't that the end and the goal? Why is it there's this this thing called the corporate reality, the bride of of Christ? Why? And I have three answers. One, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3 clue us into a mystery about joy, because I think joy in God, delight in God, desiring God, satisfaction. We just sang it, until my heart is satisfied, because that's the end. Like, you don't try to get satisfied in order to do something for God. He doesn't need you at all. Therefore, satisfaction in Him is the end. That's the goal. That's what makes him smile. You are totally content and satisfied in me. I'm the end. I'm the goal. You can show that in a hundred ways. This text, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 to 3, clues us in about there's a mystery here that clues us in why individual joy in God is not the end alone. I'll read it to you. Paul says two things here. This is verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 2. If I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? then the next verse, I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. In the body of Christ. Where we are spiritually united in Him, something profound happens in the experience of joy in God. My joy in God, your joy in God, together, Paul says, my joy, I was sure, would be the joy of you all, and yours would be mine. My joy in God is more because yours is mine, and yours is more because mine is yours. And therefore, the totality of Christ-exalting affection that comes into being in corporate worship is not merely the sum of the parts. It's more, a new reality has come into being in the Bride worshiping together. A great mystery comes into being. The worshiping Bride is the goal of creation because the interpenetration of Christ-exalting joy is something new. Something greater, something more God-glorifying than the assembly of individual flames of affection. That's number one. Number two, the unified harmony of diverse voices is more beautiful than the greatest sound of voices in unison. Let me step back and make sure you're with me. I'm trying to give you three reasons why not the individual soul aflame with love to God is the end of creation, but rather the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, united in corporate worship is the end of creation. That's what I'm trying to do. This is reason number two, the unified harmony of diverse voices. Is more beautiful than the greatest sound of voices in unison. It is a glorious thing, not to minimize unison, it is a glorious thing when, say, 50,000 people blast with unison, like an army going to war and singing their ballad of homeland. That's a glorious thing. But If those voices were to, at a point, break into diverse harmony, something else happens. Not less, and not dispensing with the former, but glorious. And I'm not just talking about a musical phenomenon here, though that's clear it's true about countless diversities in the body of Christ that God is up to these days, right? Time, across all time, geography, ethnic diversities, age diversities, male and female diversities, personality diversities, taste and preference diversities. Voice quality diversities. I <laughs> think, think of Bob Dylan and Pavarotti. <laughs> and I won't even venture Pavarotti. <laughs> I love them both in their own way. Such diversity. What God is doing in the gathering of the Bride of Christ in united diversity of the worshiping bride, something more beautiful is created than if she were all of one kind on any number of scales. That's the second reason why corporate worship of the bride is ultimate, not just Individuals, And third and lastly, God designed for Christ to have a worshiping bride and not just worshiping individuals because the greatness and the beauty and the worth of a leader is revealed by the extent of the diversity he can inspire and motivate in who follows him, who has allegiance to him. I'm thinking of Revelation 5. I'll read it to you. It's a very familiar text. You know it well. I'm thinking of our Redeemer leader, right? What did he do to lead us? To lead us together into one priesthood and one kingdom? What did he do? He died. He ransomed a people. So, here's what it says. They sang a new song, saying, worthy. Now, notice the ground of the worthiness. Worthy are you, because creation was made to exalt the worthiness of the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, And by your blood, you ransomed people from every tribe and every language and all the people and all the nations. And you have made them one kingdom and one priesthood, a singing kingdom and a singing priesthood. So the glory of Christ, the point of that text is the glory of Christ, the honor of the Lamb, shines more brightly because he's the kind of redeemer leader who can hold together the allegiance of unbelievably diverse people. He can hold us together in song and in many, many other ways. So, in conclusion, the the universe is created to display the worth of the Lamb. His glory, His greatness, His beauty, His worth – and in him to display the beauty of God. When you gather next Sunday, this is my application, when you gather next Sunday in corporate worship, whether small, say your church is 30 people, or large, 3,000 or so, remember, what you're doing there is not merely assembling intensely affectionate individuals who love God and want to go vertical as solitary individuals. That's not merely what's happening. What's happening is you are becoming a manifestation, a foretaste, a rehearsal of the end, the ultimate end for which God made The world by combining individual souls aflame for Christ and something more. They become something more a greater joy, a greater harmony, a greater diverse allegiance, the worshiping bride of Christ, the goal of all things. Let's pray. So, Father, Grant that our affections would be individually unbounded because you are of unbounded excellence. And grant that our churches would become foretastes, rehearsals, manifestations of the end for which you made all things, the bride, Worshiping in that new reality which we call corporate worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.